I stand accountant for his greatest sin, but partly led to die at my revenge, for that I do suspect the lusty moor hath leaped into my seat, the thought whereof doth, like a poisonous mineral, gnaws my innards, and nothing can or shall content my soul till I am even with him, wife for wife, or failing so, yet that I put the moor at least into a jealousy so strong that judgment cannot cure. You clicked on a podcast for The Inferno, and if you're a literary nerd, you know that that passage is from Othello. However, I am getting to something with this. You see, that particular passage from Othello was often cited by literary scholars as an insight into Iago's motivation for his evil scheme against Othello. He has other arguable things that push him towards it, but that's one of the facets of Shakespeare, is that there's this florid, heightened, flowery language underpinning every line of dialogue. However, when Othello is translated to an opera, it's been translated to a couple of them, the dictates of the medium require one to sort of condense and simplify the language so that when Iago is explaining his motivations, you don't get that particular passage. You get, I'm evil, I'm evil, hot damn, am I evil? <laughs> so when you take one thing to another, as I read in my preface to a uh, prose translation of uh, the Divine Comedy, you're not quite translating it exactly. It's like taking a piece intended for the piano and playing it on the violin. You're mimicking the chords, but the different instrument has different dictates. And that plays into this film version of the first third of Dante's The Divine Comedy, where it's a silent film. So the first and most well-known aspect of poetry is very difficult to transpose into that medium. So among other things, we will be discussing how adaptation shifts the emphasis of certain artistic narratives just based on the elements that are strong within the confines of the medium itself. Hopefully that will make more sense the further we go along. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Joining me for this episode once again is my little sister Cheryl. Hello. Thank you for coming again. Hello. Thank you for having me. So uh, I'm curious, we both from uh, lapsed Catholic backgrounds, I was able to get confirmed, but uh, you had basically fallen out of it by then. However, remnants of it are still within us, mostly the guilt. <laughs> what was your first exposure to the Divine Comedy? Um, honestly, probably being super, super goth and reading things that referenced it. That's part of it with me, too, but another part of it is that I'm a big old geek who draws his own comics, so my first exposure to the story was an issue of X-Men, where Nightcrawler is Dan to a facsimile of Dante's Inferno by his adoptive mother, long story, I won't get into it, and the rest of the X-Men are guided by Doctor Strange on a rescue mission. Doctor Strange, this is why you don't have friends. <laughs> you know, he's doing them a solid. Professor X called him in. Yeah, and let me guess, as soon as it was over, he didn't get invited back to the mansion to have, like, a cup of, co like, cocoa and chat about it with everyone else. It was like, goodbye. Well, Nightcrawler got damned to hell on his birthday. I imagine they offered him a piece of cake. I feel like they probably didn't offer him any cake. Have you ever seen a picture of Doctor Strange eating cake? Well, according to Jason Aaron's run, uh, he can't digest human food anymore, but we're going well off the beaten path here. <laughs> 
Anyways, that was the start of my fascination with Dante's Inferno. Uh, I was also a sad little sullen goth boy, so tracked this down and read it on my own while I was in high school. Did not do it under duress. So I actually, I've never read Dante's Inferno. I misjudged that one. Well, yeah, I, re- I had a prose translation that I, I picked up at a Borders. I'm dating myself by mentioning that I bought it at a Borders. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's a dog-eared copy. I still have it. However, in order to refresh myself for this episode, I, I read a verse translation that had that sort of Elizabethan aura to it. But anyways, let's get into the plot of this thing. Okay, this opens with uh, Dante making his way through uh, spooky woods, and he is blocked from the Hill of Salvation by a leopard, a lion, and a wolf, which by medieval Italian <laughs> standards represent greed, pride, and lust. And as Cheryl pointed out, that wolf is more of a friendly dog. It was so cute, his tail was wagging. I love when puppies are happy to be included in movies. <laughs> Especially horror movies where they're supposed to be scary. <laughs> Dante's lost love, Beatrice, more on that later, descends from heaven and conscripts the poet Virgil to guide Dante through an alternate path to the Hill of Salvation that requires them to go through the nine circles of hell. Virgil guides Dante to the gates of hell, which are inscribed with these iconic words. If you know nothing about the Inferno except for one thing, it is this. Through me you pass into the city of woe. Through me you pass into eternal pain. Through me among the people lost for I... All hope abandon, ye who enter here. Which that. is like the best like tramp stamp tattoo idea ever, just saying. I mean, there has to be at least a couple people who have that. Uh, Virgil and Dante attain passage across the river Acheron by the ferryman Charon, albeit not without some uh, ill words. Charon doesn't want to pick up Dante because he's not dead yet. They then enter the first circle, which is Limbo. This is intended for virtuous pagans and decent people who, through no fault of their own, were never baptized. Largely people who uh, were decent before Jesus was a thing. Yeah, and they're lying around in the sand without any pants. There's a lot of nudity in this film. More on that later, too. Uh, The poets uh, converse with Homer, Horace, and Ovid, and then have their mission outlined to them. Now, the citizens of Limbo are not tortured like the other people in hell. However, paradise is forever denied them, so they just sort of exist in their afterlife forever without hope. Or pants. Or pants. Unless you're one of the poets. They, well, I mean, they don't have pants, but they got their little, like, robes. Yeah, Homer gets to have robes, but if you're just some dude who was unbaptized in the year two, you don't get the half pants. The duo then approach King Minos, who judges each sinner and then casts them to an appropriate segment of hell with his serpent tail. He's sort of an inverted St. Peter. Uh, they then enter the second circle, which is where the sexually wanton are endlessly blown about <laughs> by ceaseless winds. Which honestly looked pretty fun. Yeah, it did. It has that sort of double exposure effect where people are floating. And we're still in the beginning stages of hell, which none of the people there are getting it too bad. I mean, if you're super horny, there are definitely worse things than just fly throughout the winds forever. Nobody seems to be that in, in a bad place. Dante recognizes Cleopatra, Helen of Troy, and Queen Dido of Carthage. And Virgil doesn't say hi to Dido, which kind of strikes me as bullshit because he built his reputation off telling her tragic story. I mean, she's flying around in a sky orgy, so maybe she's just got more important things to handle at the moment. Yeah, they're approached by Francesca da Renini, and Dante just breaks down into a sobbing mess after hearing her tragic story. He, he quickly becomes numb to this the further he goes along. 
Yeah, eventually he stops just tossing himself onto the ground, being like, it's too much, it's too sad, and eventually he's just like, eh, been there, done that, get over it. Yeah, after you see one or 40 writhing pits of naked people, you sort of see them all. Anyways, in the third circle, which is where the gluttonous are, they are forced to wallow in a putrid slush produced by a stinking, unending rain of ice. Now, the people here are mauled by the three-headed dog Cerebus, but Virgil gets by the monster <laughs> by feeding it dirt from the ground. And Cerebus is this puppet which you found adorable. He was so stinking cute! He looked like somebody who had never seen a lion was tasked with taxidermying a lion, but, like, with three heads and on strings. It was so cute! And, but then he threw a dirt clot at it, and I was like, you dick. It wasn't like Cerebus could do anything about it. It was a puppet that couldn't leave his station. But anyways, (laughs) once the pair get to the fourth circle, they are accosted by Plutus, but he is powerless to deter them. In the inner titles that we have, he is mistakenly referred to as Pluto. Plutus and Pluto are different, y'all. Yeah. I mean, because you said one of them was, uh, you said Plutus is Greek, right? Plutus is the Greek god of wealth, whereas Pluto is the Roman name for Hades, the uh, lord of the underworld. Like, I can kind of understand the confusion there, but also, like, come on, check your work. The fourth circle is reserved for misers and spendthrifts. They are fated to perpetually joust each other with great bags of gold, although in this it just looks like naked people rolling about on beanbag chairs. (laughs) And they taunt each other the whole time. To be fair, you made a point when we were watching the movie that, like, this is probably, like, the easiest job for a demon to have. They're doing, like, all the work themselves. And also, like, spectator sport... Kinda sounds entertaining to watch. Mm. After passing the fifth circle, where the wrathful battle each other in, in the mire as the sullen sink to its depths, Dante and Virgil are transported across the river Styx by a reluctant Flagius. Dante is accosted by uh, Filippo Argenti, one of the many figures in the Inferno, who are just people that Dante knew in real life that he wrote into the Inferno because he has a petty grudge against them. I'm gonna write you into hell so hard after this. Way to cut me at the grocers. Basically. Now, Dante and Virgil approach the city of Dis. Now, the walls of the city are guarded by fallen angels who won't allow the pair to continue on their journey. Dante is then threatened by the Furies, who appear at the ramparts of Dis. However, an angel comes down from heaven and clears a path for them. And then the Furies vanish through that sort of early silent film trick photography. Suddenly they're not there anymore because the camera cut and then just shot again. Poof. Poof. The sixth circle is reserved for heretics doomed to roast forever in tombs of fire. Dante chats with uh, Farinato, a Florentine aristocrat who fought against Dante's home province of Tuscany. Dante be petty. (laughs) Farinato predicts that uh, Dante will be exiled by his ungrateful countrymen, which is a factor into the production of this poem. The duo travel to the next circle on the back of Gurion. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with your classical mythology, uh, Gurion is a three-headed monster that Hercules defeats in one of his labors. However, in this, he's supposed to be the symbol of fraud. So he has the head of an honest man, and then the rest of his body is a dragon. He's pretty. He's pretty sweet looking. Yeah, he's a he's a puppet on a string, and yeah, him transporting, and this is one of those little neat things that you see in silent horror movies from the twenties and thereon. Now, this is one aspect of the film that is out of order. The eighth circle is reserved for fraud, not the seventh circle. They bumped Gurion up a little early in this edit. 
This film got hacked to the bone. We'll be talking more about that later. Now, the seventh circle is for the violent. Dante and Virgil approach the wood of the suicides, in which those who took their own lives are transformed into gnarled, thorny trees that are fed upon by harpies. They are denied the form that they rejected in life, and this culminates in the trees only being permitted to speak when they are bleeding. Dante breaks off the branch of one of the trees. Turns out to be Pietro della Vigna, a minister of Emperor Frederick II, who had a high station until he offended his patron in some capacity, who then locked him in a dungeon and blinded him, and he killed himself by dashing his brains across the floor, which is uh, one of the other parts of this film where you see a flashback of that happening. All of which happened in the same room, all the flashbacks. It's a, it's a really important set. In the 8th circle, which is dedicated to the fraud, as I mentioned before, we next encountered the Flatterers, who were immersed in a river of shit, where they are... <laughs> Subtle. Yeah, futilely attempt to clean themselves. Yeah, Dante just sort of flits between, like, your traditional Judeo-Christian hell, where demons are whipping you in rivers of fire and whatnot, and then he just switches over to ironic Greek punishment hell, <laughs> where you're rolling the boulder up the hill, or you're reaching for fruit that you can never get. Fuck you, Sisyphus. <laughs> Basically, Simonians, those who sold church offices, pardons, or favors, are buried head downwards while their feet are burnt with dancing fire. Which was like an aerobics video from like the 80s. I really enjoyed that one. In the poem, Dante recognizes the head of his own church here. Dante be petty. Dante is very familiar with the head of his own church's feet. No comment. Corrupt politicians who made money through the spoil system, basically, you know, the political side of Simonians, are immersed in a lake of boiling pitch. The pitch supposed to symbolize their sticky fingers. Huh? You get it? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, One of the figures, whom Dante also recognizes, breaks away from the demons who want to flay him apart and dives into the boiling pitch because that's apparently less terrible. That was a pretty cool scene, though, because they were on, like, little strings, the demons, and they're like, wah! And they chased after him. It was very pretty. Yes, it was. The poets escape some angry demons who are chasing them and run into the hypocrites, who are fated to wander endlessly while they're wearing monk's robes that appear golden on the outside, but are actually made of lead on the inside. And you commented that those robes look appropriately stiff. They're either freshly painted or weighted down. Yep, yep, absolutely. But also, I mean, even if they were made entirely of gold, they would still be heavy as fuck. So, like, I mean, they didn't have to be full of lead. No, they didn't, but Dante be petty. Café, who, I'm probably not saying that right, who condemned Christ to death, is crucified to the ground where the hypocrites are forced to tread upon him. Although in this film, the, the extras are just very carefully stepping around the poor guy who's just tied to the ground in that scene. The time period, I wouldn't have been surprised if they were absolutely stepping on him, so they're very considerate extras. Dante and Virgil then encounter the thieves who are beset by horrible serpents who steal their forms through vicious bites. You know, because the thieves, they, they, they constantly steal from people, so they're not even allowed to keep their bodies for long. The, the, the lizard gets to occupy it, and they're forced to live in a crappy lizard body until they get bitten again. I don't remember the correct terminology, but I think it's scalies. Like, you're not the, if you don't have fur and you're a furry, it's scalies. I mean, I don't know that much about that particular subset of internet subculture, so I'll take your word for it. <laughs> but they were kids and loser people. It's like, uh, someone's going to pick up a big star from a rock and throw it at them. 
that makes me think back to that X-Men uh, annual because Storm gets thrown into the thief pit because she was a pickpocket in Cairo. And John Romita Jr., who drew that annual, Chris Claremont wrote it. He did a very nice job of drawing Lizard Storm. Oh, I bet it's cute. That's not the word I would use for it. I think snakes are adorable. The little snake faces. They always look like they're smiling. They next run into the fraudulent advisors, as in advisors who encouraged their masters to commit fraud. They are condemned to burn ceaselessly in flame, which sounds like a very basic bitch punishment for hell. You're just on fire. Everybody else has weird creative things happening to them or or in shit rivers, and you get to be on fire. Yeah, Dante recognizes Ulysses and Diomedes, who are being punished for devising the Trojan horse. The next place we go to is for the sowers of discord, the people who create schism. They are punished by being hacked and mutilated by a sword-wielding demon for all eternity. The damned must then drag their ruined bodies around a ditch until they heal, only to be attacked by the demon yet again. Dante recognizes the prophet Muhammad, yes, we'll be talking about that later, who exposes his entrails to the poets. This was also a super fucking cool scene. The way that they uh, had the amputated limbs, that was amazing. Yeah, the way they darkened out the the, the stumps and had the actors hobble. Yeah, they had had like a black screen set up and they just painted like an arm or a leg. It was so cool. And like the one with the head, somebody's holding their decapitated head and it's just two guys that are super close. I really liked that. Yeah, they were right after incredibly Caucasian Muhammad. Yes. Forgers, falsifiers, alchemists, and counterfeiters are fated to shamble about in diseased, leprous bodies. Dante gets into a heated dispute with several of those who he knew in life, Dante be petty, but uh, (laughs) Virgil turns him aside with the admonishment that such wrangling is a joy for vulgar minds, Dante be petty. Uh, the passage between the 8th and the ninth circle is guarded by both classical and biblical giants, because in case you haven't noticed at this point, Dante likes to throw a lot of classical Greco-Roman mythology in with his biblical scripture. More on that later. Dante recognizes Nimrod and uh, Ephialtes, not the one who betrayed uh, Leonidas in 300, the other one. Antaeus is petitioned by Virgil to pick them up in his hand and just drop them down to the uh, final circle, which is accomplished with not terribly convincing doll effects. But I mean, they were really cute dolls, though. They're like, oh, and I'll pick you up and then put you down. And then the scene right after, where they're like, no, he will be a giant now. Like, it was really cute. They double expose Antaeus's giant feet uh, in the background. <laughs> and that brings them to the final circle. And the ninth circle, since it is the furthest point from God's love and the sun that he has given to uh, to the human race, it is an unbearably cold, frozen lake. And this area is set aside for traitors, betrayers, and oath-breakers, whom Dante is very mad at for personal reasons. (laughs) Now, all these people are buried in ice to a level related to the depth of their own treason. Those who betrayed, you know, their close friends and family members, they're buried up to their shoulders. Those who betrayed their country, like up to their neck. And those who betrayed God are just completely immersed in the ice. Dante approaches a man who was imprisoned by an archbishop and along with his family until they starved to death and he cannibalized their corpses. And thus, he gets to just eat the archbishop's brains for all eternity. Yeah, out of all of the zombies in this film, he's the only one who gets to eat brains. 
Oh, but also Dante's a petty bitch and rips out some dude's hair. Oh, yeah. He walks up to some guy who's in the frozen ice that he knew in life. And he's like, he just rips out pieces of his hair because Dante be petty. Now, we finally come upon Lucifer, the ultimate traitor. Um, nom, 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 nom. Yeah, yeah, he lies at the center of hell. While the poem comments that he was once beautiful, his fall from grace is transformed into a horrific beast with three mouths. Now, Lu Lucifer is gnawing on three people. Two of them are Brutus and Cassius, because Dante's Italian, and therefore those who betrayed Caesar are pretty horrible traitors. However, the center mouth, which is the worst one, is reserved for Judas. Yeah, there's there's a lot of close-ups of Lucifer as he's doing his om-noms. It's really cute. It looks like a dog that's like picked up like a remote or something and knows that he shouldn't be chewing on it. So if you get close, he's going to chew faster. Earlier, you compared it to a cat that got a hold of a piece of plastic. I compared it to my cat that had a plastic bag, yes, because the moment I get close, he's like, I have to get it all in my mouth now. I'm like, no, you're going to die. Virgil and Dante climb past the shaggy sides of the devil in order to reach the path out of hell, where they see the starry nights above, and in the poem they move on to purgatory and eventually paradise, but those are more boring. We only get the sexy, atrocious aspects of the Divine Comedy, so this is the end of the film. Also, butts. So many butts. More on that later. Uh, before we get to the thematic currents and the production, I'm going to talk about the background of the source material a little bit. I am not a literary scholar. I do not hold any degrees, but I'm a mediocre white man, so I'm just going to plow through with an aura of confidence and hope that nobody notices. Don't be so hard on yourself. I think you're a great white man. <laughs> great white man is a loaded term, especially at the date of this recording. Anyways, in order to keep this episode from being too, too long... <laughs> Dante, not much is known about his life, although he almost certainly was a wealthy uh, person who got a high-class education, since he's familiar with Greco-Roman classic literature. He spent most of his life in politics, uh, however, because of the constant bickering between medieval Italian city-states during that period, he eventually got on the wrong side of some powerful people and was forced into exile. This is when the bulk of his poetry was composed because he didn't have much else to do, and his ambitions throughout the entirety of his adult life have been dashed into pieces, so he had to find new meaning for himself. The Divine Comedy was possibly inspired by Beatrice, who was a little girl that Dante was fixated upon in his childhood that he never actually spoke to. Creepy. Yeah, so he just sort of built her up in his mind as this perfect, unspoiled, virginal princess that he placed upon a, a pedestal, which is not uncommon amongst medieval aristocracy during this period. There's much writing about chivalrous love and going out and earning her favor by slaying the dragons and whatnot, and he just turned Beatrice into one of those. He wrote the Divine Comedy, at least in part, to immortalize Beatrice. She's a much bigger figure in the heavenly aspects of the piece. She only has a minor cameo in, in Inferno. Now, it was completed, or at least Dante stopped working on it in 1321 when he died. Uh, <laughs> one of the most noteworthy aspects of it is that it was written in the vernacular. Most literature in Europe at this period was written in Latin, which made it inaccessible to all but the most learned of scholars. However... 
This is written in a much more quotidian colloquial one, the, the Tuscan Italian dialect. And it caught on. It was embraced almost immediately after it was discovered. The original manuscript has long been lost, but most of the early translations you can still hunt down in some capacity. At least partially because of Dante, the Tuscan Italian dialect eventually became the standard for the Italian language as a whole. Dante didn't do this all by himself, but when the Renaissance came about, the, the great Italian poets from that period lifted from Dante, and because of them, that's why the Tuscan Italian dialect is the Italian language. That's about everything I want to do about the background of the source material, so let's talk about the production of the film itself. Italy it was something of a Johnny-come-lately to cinema. France, Germany, Denmark, and the UK began producing films well before Italy got around to it. The first known Italian film was made in 1903, which is seven years after the Lumiere brothers showed off their tech in Rome and Milan. The development of the film was financed by Milano Films for 100,000 lira, which is considered a ludicrously huge sum by the standards of the day. This version of Inferno is the second feature-length film in cinema history, the first being 1906's The Story of Kelly Gang, which is an Australian film. Uh, the shooting took about two years, and it had an original runtime of about three hours. Only a third of the film survives to the present day, hence that awkwardly re-edited Gurian bit. That's what I, uh, I, I suspect that was just sort of plastered over there because of all the missing footage. Oh, that's kind of sad. The film feels like a full thing. You, you got like an entire story out of it. But if you read the poem right before watching the movie, like I just did, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that was telescoped. The seventh circle devoted to the violent. They skip over a lot of bits, or rather the bits were cut out. The fraud section is even longer. What's really interesting is that the segment of hell that is devoted to sorcerers and fortune tellers, that is one of the most graphically interesting elements of the Inferno, because they're forced to rove about with their heads reversed. You know, because they tried to tell the future, thus defying God's will, they are forced to look backwards and sort of huddle about. More ironic uh, ancient Greek punishment there. Sorry, the reason I'm squinting so much is I'm like, that's, I'm pretty sure they show up in the sequel to Peter Pan that was published a couple of years ago to try to like get the uh, children's hospital more money. So I'm like, that's, why is that in a children's book? You can say, why is that in the children's book about lots of things? <laughs> Sorry, what was the name of the weird uh, man-faced luck dragon that they were riding around on? I can't remember. Gurian. Gurian. I'm going to have to look into that, because that kind of used the shit out of me. Yeah, I might be mispronouncing his name. I should have looked it up before I started recording this. I say that to myself a lot after certain episodes. Sweet womp. Anyways, uh, the visuals of the film uh, are heavily derived from the wood and metal engravings of the French artist Gustave Doré, who, who is a personal favorite of mine. I adore his work. You uh, adore his work? I really shouldn't have teed myself <laughs> up for that. Stop asking me to come back if you don't want this to keep happening. <laughs> I know. Brought, I'm bringing this on myself time and again. Beef did nothing wrong. Hashtag beef did nothing wrong! Now, the shooting of this film is very common for silent films of the period. Uh, this is before both Soviet montage and German expressionism, so this doesn't have the camera moving or panning or zooming or taking any storytelling tricks of its own. You're basically parking a tripod in front of a play and just letting things unfold. So the star of the film are its special effects. This is the first known film to employ wire effects to simulate flight. 
Now, this is, of course, a common element of theater, but this is the first known example of somebody doing that Peter Pan, if you believe in fairies, clap your hands, except now it's the devil wire stunts in front of a camera. It was pretty badass, especially, like I said, the one where the dudes like dive in into the, the river of pitch and they're like, we're going to get you anyway. It was pretty good. Technical director uh, Emilio Rosando uh, lifted many trick photography techniques from George Melies. So if you like those old-timey silent film superimpositions, they're all over the place. There's double uh, exposure, sometimes triple and even quadruple exposures. When you know, you're making Minos look bigger than everybody else, or you know the, the various giants, or the souls of the wanton being flimmed around for their various feats of horniness. Beatrice's weird windmill halo thing that was going on. Yeah, that bit. Now, while this film was being shot over the course of two years, a competing studio called Helios uh, rushed a shorter, crappier version to theaters <laughs> two months before this one came out. Isn't that just like every part of like everybody's childhood? It's just like, I want to go see this movie. And your mom's just like, hey, I got it for you at the grocery store. And you're like, oh, that's probably not a good sign. <laughs> yeah, we have a couple of those. <laughs> The reception of this film, uh, it was first screened in Naples in the Teatro uh, Mercadante on March 10th of 1911. It was incredibly successful. Uh, film was still, once again, a very new artistic medium in the day. Most people did not consider it to be artistically significant, even if they were making the films themselves, which is why two-thirds of this movie doesn't exist, and most films before 1928 have been irreparably destroyed. However, this did gain respectability for film as a form of artistic expression in Italy. Uh, people in Italy started referring to movie making as the seventh art, which sounds very lofty. Uh, it was incredibly successful in the United States, although there were people wary about it because during this period, Inferno was only the second feature-length film. Uh, most movies were maybe 5 to 20 minutes long, half-hour tops. So a number of theaters were concerned, thinking that nobody would be willing to sit through a three-hour movie. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, three hours is a long time for a lot of people. It was very successful, and theater owners used the length of the film as an excuse to raise ticket prices. Uh, I love it. I also kind of like what used the seventh art. That's just what I'm going to call myself from now on. Yeah, I don't know what the first six arts are. They're all me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm assuming they're like visual art, music, theater, novels, maybe. Culinary art. It's Italy, so probably. All right, now that brings us to the thematic portion of the show. First thing I want to talk about. Sneaking naughty stuff in the mainstream movies by giving it a religious theme. <laughs> religious fucks. <laughs> Inferno was possibly the first movie to do this, but this is not unique to film. There is plenty of saucy material in Renaissance art. You know, Michelangelo just painting floppy dicks on top of the Sistine Chapel. I mean, like, well, since it's from the Bible, I can draw all these dudes that I totally want to bone, just sort of lounging around in positions I want to bone them in. But since it's from the Bible, it's cool. Dave is prepubescent in the Bible, but he's a sexy man when Michelangelo made a <laughs> statue of him. He also has a nice butt. I feel like a lot of the episodes you have me on were like, hey, butts. I insist that wasn't on purpose. Anyways, in the early 20th century, the Pope forbid priests from entering movie theaters because he was afraid that they would be tempted by the lurid spectacle. However, 
since Inferno had at least the veneer of respectability, since it's based on something with a religious theme and is at least on its basic surface level proselytizing to you, that was able to slip it through. As a matter of fact, the film was marketed in the United States as a convincing sermon. A promotional material mentioned an early screening where a lawyer screamed that he was a sinner and then drowned himself afterwards because the vivid lessons of the film just permeated to the uttermost depths of his soul. Wait, but that doesn't like that doesn't sound like a good thing for Catholics because if he immediately drowns himself, that's just doing another sin, right? I'm a sinner, I'm gonna sin, watch me do it. Yeah, he gets turned into a tree. However, if someone was like, Oh, that dude killed himself, I should check that shit out. <laughs> Advertising. Yeah, it worked. Once again, that movie made $2 million, and I did not adjust for inflation there. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Good for them. Yeah, and I don't know how much it cost to see a movie in 1911, like a nickel. You said it took them like two years to make it? Yep. Good for them. The lesson projected in Inferno was applied to many other films throughout the years, uh, particularly by Cecil B. DeMille, who took this ball and ran with it, particularly in his early silent film biblical epics. They have lots of nudity and carnality and gore-crunching violence, but, you know, it involves Moses, so it's okay. <laughs> and this continued onwards into the days of the, of the Hayes Code. Some people might wonder why there are so many biblical epics throughout the 1950s and also classical-themed works like Ben-Hur. It's because, at least partially, producers knew that you could sneak more booby and more sword hopping around if you at least pretended that it had, you know, religious value to it. Is sword hopping around, like, fighting, or is that just dicks? I want to go with yes on both counts. <laughs> that was me tripping over my words, but you know what? That's a phrase that I've officially coined. <laughs> Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about is the strains of adaptation, which is something I hinted at in my introduction. As I mentioned before, Inferno is a silent film, and while they do paraphrase aspects of the epic poem in the intertitles, most of the evocative verse is not in this film because of the nature of silent film. It, it can't be. And this brought me to criticisms of adaptation, the first being something that Lindsay Ellis brings up in her very good video essay for PBS where she talks about Broadway musicals that are based on stuff that you've heard of. Uh, the first thing she brings up is The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, a 1936 essay by Walter Benjamin. He positions that, like a photostat machine that does photocopies, every original work of art has an aura of authenticity that is stripped away when it is copied or reproduced, a copy of a copy, in other words. This then comes to Robert Stamm, a film scholar who Ellis studied under. Now he says, Literature will always have an axiomatic superiority over other forms of adaptation because of its seniority as an art form. And he brings up iconophobia, the suspicion of the visual, as opposed to more trust in the written word, which once again strikes me immediately as bullshit because by any measure of anthropology, visual art predates the written word. I don't think that's a controversial uh, stance to take. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, I agree. Arguments like this, while well, people are always making them, why is every movie based on something else? Why is everything a remake? Where's the original stuff? You, you see that in every internet comment ever. This does carry an element of snobbery. 
This dates back to lots of other things. The novel was once considered trashy, for the masses, cheap, chintzy, throwaway disposable art. And if you go back far enough, Socrates hated the written word just as in and of itself. He considered it cheating. He considered it something that softened the mind of those pesky young people. And that if you are really smart and intelligent like Socrates, you would memorize things and be able to recite them as opposed to reading them. Like you soft-headed, low-IQ fool. <laughs> let's, uh, let's hide all the math secrets so that everybody else around us doesn't get to be uh, super intelligent early on and it takes forever and it stunts everyone. But, yeah, film being a younger th- uh, medium than you know novels and epic poetry, a lot of people just associate that sort of thing with being belated, middle-brow, or just culturally inferior in general. And... I'm bringing my own personal biases into this sort of thing because I am a comic book artist, which, once again, is considered a very young medium and something of a bastard medium. And while there are more honorifics bestowed upon comics, sometimes in a performative fashion, it is still sort of written off by a lot of other corners of uh, academia. Comic book artists are still given less recognition for the seriousness of what they undertake this then say writers who can't draw or artists who can't write whereas comic book people do both i say that as it sticks in my craw (laughs) so you can tell which side i'm on here i think that artistic mediums are different but not necessarily inferior each has their own strengths and different things work in different ways film i think has a visceral effect that literature can sometimes struggle to attain on its own I mean, you're preaching to the choir here. I've always been a big fan of mixed media because I feel like being able to reach into other facets helps you get a message across in a manner that, you know, is interesting and is going to reach a bunch of different people. Dante's language isn't perfectly conveyed in Inferno. There are aspects of the 1911 Inferno film that do things that the poem just can't, especially the version we watched that had that eerie electronic music score to it. Yeah, that was really pretty. Yeah, because no matter what literature does to your mind while you're reading it and the images you conjure into it, music has a direct effect that no form of written word can purely replicate. You know, visual art is art, live theater is art, film is art, literature is art, music is art. I think a lot of ways people just saying the book is better or something like that is an apples and oranges scenario. I think that the 1911 Inferno film is artistically valid as an extension of Dante or uh, a supplement to Dante. It's not a replacement for it, and I don't think it's trying to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, before we go any further, I do want to set aside some space for this film's depiction of the Prophet Muhammad, which is in the source home. I dug into this a bit more because the terrorist attack at Charlie Hedbo is a couple of years in the past, but it's still recent history as of the state of the recording. I think a lot of Western people are a bit ignorant in regards to the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad and why most sects of Islam are opposed to it, so I wanted to talk about it a little bit, but this is another thing where I might be out of my depth. Go to primary sources if you want to know more, but broad strokes from mediocre white dude doing the best he can. There is nothing in the Quran that explicitly forbids the practice of depicting the Prophet Muhammad. Supplemental materials to the Quran either forbid it or at least discourage the artistic renderings of not only Muhammad, but any living being whatsoever. Mostly under concerns that doing so could be seen as idolatrous. You know, you accidentally draw a golden calf. 
I mean, I can understand the argument, she says, being a figure drawing, but drawer. And this also led to how art in the Islamic world largely drifted away from figurative interpretation and gravitated more towards abstract geometric patterns. Mm. Like, when you know that, that suddenly explains a whole lot. Renderings of Muhammad in the 1300s, they did exist, but they were mostly intended for private viewing only, mostly to, to you know discourage worship. However... The advent of mass media in the 19th century created new problems for the situation. And when fundamentalist aspects of Islam informed by European colonialism, people seem to not mention the European colonialism when it's convenient for them. At this point, the atmosphere went towards depicting prophets who are supposed to be perfect would be inherently disrespectful because the artists who are rendering them are imperfect beings. And this was seen not necessarily as idolatrous, but disrespectful. Also, like, out of, like, being an artist yourself, how many times have you, like, been like, oh, shoot, I need to draw this figure and, like, I'm having a hard time. Let me take a look at my own reflection. There we go. That's how the proportions are supposed to work. Yeah, I've done that here or there for poetry comics. Week after week, I'm drawing these new things, but lots of poems mention the same things over and over again, the sun, the moon, flowers, so on and so forth. And I just got it into my head that I want to draw it a different way every single time just to keep it from being too monotonous. So I'm always just looking up different art styles or different tools in order to change it up. So I'm not really going for a perfect interpretation. So yeah, by Muslim standards, my art is very disrespectful. (laughs) The prohibition is uncontroversial in most of the Muslim world, but there are exceptions. Most notably, uh, Shia Muslims find it to be acceptable in certain contexts, whereas Sunni Muslims do not. Which, I'm not saying that that is the main reason why there's such conflict between them, but it is indicative of the very different positions that they have towards their faith. Yeah, and it's definitely an interesting thing to point out, the different stands. Other things I wanted to point out here, just how uh, the Inferno was something of a precursor to the Renaissance, which I'm sure is more about the poem than the film, so I only want to talk about this briefly, but you know, once again... All sorts of Greco-Roman mythology throughout the uh, Inferno, just up and down, call it every which way. And that's indicative of Dante's privilege. There is absolutely no way he would have known about this stuff unless he was born into an aristocratic family. But it's also an element of the Renaissance where a degree of nostalgia for your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents' childhood, just looking back at the very distant past and seeing it as a more civilized time and bringing back this iconography from this era and bringing it in a more modernized context and just sort of awkwardly cramming it into your Christian dogma in order to make it fit. Yeah, and like that part definitely amuses me. As you can see it like with like the giants, you've got the biblical ones, which are like, if I remember correctly, the biblical giants are humans that bone down with angels, created monstrosities, and that's how you get their giants. It depends on various other Canaanite faiths, all of like Babylonian and Assyrian and other spiritual practices from the ancient Tigris and Euphrates River Valley mention a flood and the period before the flood. And most of them are like, you know, there's giants roving about and all these other crazy monsters and God destroyed that world mostly to get rid of them. (laughs) And then you read the Christian Bible and it's just because people are naughty. Yeah. Oh no, but sometimes sometimes you get the giants in there too. 
Yeah, it, it depends on how far off the beaten path of accepted canon you decide to go. That's a whole aspect of, of the Renaissance. You know, Dante's a little ahead of the curve. It's part of human approaches to history where we try to divide things into neat little eras. And the more you know about these things, the less clearly the borders are. Because, I mean, the Middle Ages were not devoid of great thinkers or great artists or people who studied classical antiquity. Classical antiquity survived to the Renaissance because the Catholic Church held on to it throughout the Middle Ages. And also, there are certain historians who argue that the Renaissance didn't really happen in any way that's particularly significant for most of the people who <laughs> live through it, because while Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and Shakespeare were still doing their things, and they did advance the world that had ramifications that were very important down the road, the average peasant in the year 1400 was not living as particularly particularly distinct life from a peasant in 1200. <laughs> All right, and well, that's just about everything that's in my notes. This is a work of literature and also a work of film that is very old and has been parsed through by a number of other people. I could talk about other elements of this. The 1911 Inferno film, because it's in the public domain, has been chopped and used in lots of really low-quality B-movie horror films because they have just an instant source of stock footage. I haven't heard of most of those movies. Maybe if I had seen a couple of them, I'd bring them up here, but yeah, just passing reference. I don't really have that much else that I wanted to say. Is there any aspect of Inferno that you would like to bring up that we haven't touched upon yet. Yeah, Dante is like the original super fanboy. Oh, yes, this is biblical fan fiction. Dante obviously influenced a lot of things that came afterwards, the Canterbury Tales. I have a very hard time believing that Milton wasn't thinking of the uh, Divine Comedy while he was putting Paradise Lost together, uh, particularly since he was also inflicted with something that completely altered the course of his life, although for him it was blindness rather than having his political career getting dashed to pieces on him. I, I sympathize more with Milton. Oh, burn! Burn. <laughs> and with that, I believe that wraps it up. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week for a new episode.